Friends, we're exploring the Kutasikas volume 19, the Sikha for Shabbos Nachamu. It's called Shabbos Nachamu because the Haftorah famously begins with the prophecy, the words of Yeshaya, Isaiah, Nachamu, Nachamu, Ami, be comforted, be comforted, my people. And the Medrash tells us that God offers us a double comfort. Whenever something is double in Torah, it's a big deal. It represents an infinity. Double comfort. And that becomes a the theme of the Sicha. What's this double comfort? And it's mirrored in the Talmud, this, Talmud, this uh, biblical verse. At the last line of Masechta Makos, Tractate Makos tells us a couple of stories, Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues. And he was always the optimist, and they not so much. At the end of the stories, these two stories that we will review, the sages turned to Rabbi Akiva and said, Akiva nichamtanu, Akiva nichamtanu. Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. And this is an example how the oral Torah, the Gemara, the Talmud, mirrors the Torah Shabbat, the biblical, the written Torah, in that double comfort. So again, it begs the question, and it helps give us insight into what Torah means, double comfort. This is a mind-blowing sicha, an extraordinary sicha, as every single sicha really is. But this obviously is so, and it's very long and complex, and it has chassidus, and it has Halacha, in order to make it work, to make it clear, that's my goal, to present it in a way that someone can just relax and sit back and follow and not get lost with the flow of things, I am presenting the Sicha in three sections. There's going to be three different spreadsheets that are going to be brought up. You can watch each one separately, you can finish one, digest it, and then move on to the second, or decide not to. Each one really stands on its own. Namely, the first one is going to be a discussion all about these Talmudic stories and Rabbi Akiva's discussion with his colleagues and what does it even mean? Because on the face of it, it's full with a bunch of questions. A spreadsheet and discussion number two is going to be understanding the significance of their different approaches, them being the pessimists, him being the optimist. Where does that difference of approach come from? And why at some point do they not agree with him and eventually they do agree with him? And finally, the third section of this class and of the spreadsheet will be a halachic application of these two approaches, which the Rebbe suggests might very well be the root cause of the two opinions, the sages versus Rabbi Akiva, the pessimist versus the optimist, based on their halachic differences. So that's like the cherry on the cake. In the Sikha, that discussion is right in the middle. But to my thinking, it's difficult for a lot of people to follow it. It feels like it's being derailed. So I sort of finished the Hasidus and the that Avedis Hashem, if you will, section of the Sikha, Hashkafa, part of the Sikha, discussing with our approach to life and to faith. And then at the end, I put the Halacha section in separate just for clarity. Okay. Got that out there. Let's move right into the thing. So the closing of the tractate of Makos finishes with two stories. Both stories happened. I'm obviously going to follow along with the spreadsheet. Both stories happened with four sages, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, and Rabbi Akiva. These four are amongst the leaders of the Jewish people. Some decades after the destruction, I don't know, four or five decades after the destruction. 
And they spent a lot of time together, apparently. Parenthetically, if you look into the Haggadah, and it tells the story of the sages, did the Seder together in Brebrak, and the four of those five, I believe, were these. Okay. And what are these stories? Story number one is, they are all going to Rome. Why are they going to Rome? They're not going on vacation. They're going to appeal to Rome to be kind to the Jews and to remove a terrible decree against the Jews that Jews were under Roman occupation, Roman control. So they're going to Rome. Because times call for it. See, they're in exile. They're under oppression. And, uh, and they're going to go ask for mercy and for clemency. And they're going on this mission. As they near Rome, even as they're still pretty far away, the Talmud says 120 mil, whatever that means. It's, it's many, many, many miles. They start to hear the commotion of Rome. It's a large metropolis and there's celebrations and people are partying. As they say in Yiddish, it's a happening situation. It's a, it's a, it's a good life. So they started to cry, they meaning the first three on the list. And Rabbi Akiva starts to laugh. So here we have the beautiful Talmudic discussion. They said, why are you laughing? Rabbi Akiva turns to them and says, why are you crying? So the sages said, why are we crying? Here we have idol worshippers, sinners, and they're celebrating and they're sitting in comfort and security and life is good. And the house of Hashem, etc. the Jewish people who serve Hashem in that house, it's laying in roots and we shouldn't cry. Said Rabbi Akiva, that's why I'm laughing. If this is how Hashem treats transgressors, can you imagine how he will treat and reward the Jewish people who obey him? It's going to be good in the future. It's going to be beyond good because look how they're living. These are sinners. Could you imagine how the Jews are going to live when Mashiach comes? It's going to be, it's going to be, it's going to be beyond imaginably extraordinary. They did not comment. You might say they agreed to disagree. They're crying, he's laughing. And then later, at another time, there's another story. This time, they're not going to Rome. They're approaching Jerusalem. And they come to Mount Scopus, where you can see Haratzoifim, where you can see the Temple Mount. They tear their garments, as per Jewish law. And then as they get closer, they see a fox exiting this place where it formerly was the Holy of Holies. They start to cry, and Rabbi Akiva laughs. The same story. So they have, again, the same conversation back and forth. Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? So he says to them, and why are you crying? And they say, what are you kidding me? This place, the place of the Holy of Holies, where the Torah says a stranger that comes there, even a Jew, even a priest, even a Kayan Gadol, not on Yom Kippur, is punishable by death. It's too holy. And now foxen are roaming there and we shouldn't cry. Said Rabbi Akiva, that's why I'm laughing. Rabbi Akiva quotes, that is a verse in Yeshaya, the prophet of redemption in Isaiah, that he says that I call to testify. Uriah HaKohen and Zechariah ben Yibarchayu. I'm calling them to testify. That's the words of uh, uh, the prophet Isaiah. Rabbi Akiva says, what is the connection of these two, uh, these two people? These are two prophets who come before Isaiah, and they come in different times. The first one, Uriah, is in the time of the first temple, and he prophesied doom and gloom and destruction. He prophesied that Zion will be plowed like a field. 
including the Beis Hamidrash itself. And the second prophet, Zechariah, he comes before the second temple and he's prophesizing redemption. That old men and women will sit in the streets of Jerusalem and you'll hear the sound of song and celebration and jubilation. So why is Isaiah, this is Rabbi Akiva analyzing, why is Isaiah saying in his verse that I call to testify these two test witnesses? Normally when you bring two witnesses, that means that they're both standing at the same time. One is at the first temple, one is at the second temple. It's different prophecies. One is the prophecy of destruction, one is the prophecy of redemption. Says Rabbi Akiva, I'll tell you why Yeshaya Novi Isaiah did that. Because he's pointing out that we're going to have these two prophecies. We're going to suffer, God forbid, destruction. That's the prophecy number one. We're also going to later experience the prophecy of redemption. Mashiach. That's prophecy number two. Isaiah is juxtaposing them to show that they're linked. Says Rabbi Akiva, aha, if they're linked. So now I'm going to explain to you why I laughed. Till I saw the fulfillment of the prophecy of Uriah, of doom and gloom, I wasn't sure about the fulfillment of the prophecy of Zechariah, of redemption and jubilation. Now that I see the doom and gloom prophecy coming true, I can be certain to expect the prophecy of redemption to be fulfilled. Said the sages to Rabbi Akiva after the second story. Akiva, you have comforted us. Akiva, you have comforted us. That's the two stories of the Talmud. This is the closing lines of tractate. Makos v'sechte makos. Says the Rebbe. The Rebbe asked a number of questions. I sort of encapsulated them in three. For this section of the class, there will be some more questions in the next, in the next one. Number one is, what kind of question are they, Rabbi Akiva, asking, why are you crying? Why are we, when they ask him, why are you laughing? That's a good question. Why are we crying? In both of these stories, they're seeing the enemies on top. They're seeing the Jews' uh, destruction. Like, why is that been a question? Did Rabbi Akiva not mourn the temple's destruction? In fact, says the Rebbe, that one line earlier when it says that they saw that they tore their garments when they came to Mount Scopus and they saw the base of Mignesh in ruins, the Rebbe says no reason to believe that Rabbi Akiva wasn't amongst those who tore their garments. It doesn't say that he was accepted, the exception. They all tore their garments. So he too mourned Jerusalem, which is Jewish law. You're supposed to tear your garments at, at such a juncture. So why is he asking such a ridiculous question? Question two, what is Rabbi Akiva saying in story B? They want to know why I'm laughing. Because there's two prophecies. One is a bad one, and one is going to be a subsequent good one machine. And until I saw the first one, I didn't believe the second one is possible. And that it will happen. Now that I saw this come true, I'll know the other one will come true. Does this make sense? Rabbi Akiva is doubting a prophecy. Prophecies come true. In fact, the rule is that good prophecies must come true. Bad prophecies of doom and gloom, Hashem could decide to change his mind, the people do tshuva, what have you. But when Hashem makes a promise through a prophet, what have you, of a good thing, it will never not be fulfilled. Rabbi Akiva needs a sign that a prophecy, let alone a prophecy of goodness, will be fulfilled. Of course it will. So what does he mean to say that I'm laughing because till now I wasn't sure that these good days are going to come. Now that I saw the bad days, I'm confident the good days will come. This is a prophecy. 
Very simple, basic question. And number three seems to be a side question, but it becomes very significant in the explanation that the Rebbe is going to present. When he's quoting Rabbi Akiva in story B, the prophecy of destruction of Zechariah, of uh, Uriah, he quotes the verse, a seemingly random verse about destruction in the book of Micha, which is much later in the prophets. We need to say there are, and that verse is, as you can see on your screen in story number two, and uh, Zion will be plowed like a field. There are many, many, many earlier prophecies of doom and gloom going back to the book of Yirmiyahu, etc. Uh, why are we choosing the book of Micha? Some later prophecy to choose a, a random prophecy of destruction. Plus, it doesn't even speak directly to destruction. It's a poetic way of saying destruction. Like, why was this chosen? It seems totally random. These are the three questions which... If you think about these three questions, they take apart, really, especially question one and two, they take apart this whole story. What's going on here? Why is he laughing? And he's asking them why they're crying. And he's doubting the prophecy. The whole thing doesn't make any sense. Says the Rebbe, when he asks them a question, why are you crying? He's not asking, why are you sad? It's clearly it's clear that the, the, the destruction of the temple evokes sadness. Rabbi Akiva himself was sad, and he mourned the temple, no doubt, and he tore his garments. However, the temple was destroyed decades earlier. Obviously, they were all in pain. But why suddenly, what triggered the new thing that suddenly you start to cry? You know, you know, if you're such an inspired Jew that you feel the temple's destruction every day, you cry always. If you're not crying, so why suddenly you cry? What did you see that you didn't know before? This is what his question is in both of these stories. You're coming to Rome. This is decades after the Churban, after the Bishamikish is destroyed and Rome has conquered Israel and everything else, and Rome is living a good life. Everybody knows this. This is not news. We're coming to Rome. What did you see? You saw that they're having a good life. Suddenly you're starting to cry. It's old news. And is this the biggest news that because Rome is having a good time, you're now going to cry over the destruction? Like, how is this such a significant moment? That's what his question is. And the same thing in the second story. The, the Tempe something is just destroyed for decades. You come and you see a fox walking out, you start to cry. I mean, these are giant people. There's not just people that are emotional based and, and they saw something they didn't like, so they started to cry. These greats all cried. By these two things. Rabbi Akiva says, Why are you crying? Meaning to say, of course it's sad. It's beyond sad. But what happened now that renewed that crying? In addition to obviously the, the broken heart that we all live with, meaning since the destruction. But what happened now? That's his question. And their reply says that it happened. They're not answering it in a rhetorical way, in a, in a simple way. Well, the temple was destroyed and people had, and this, that's obvious. It wouldn't be a need for a whole dialogue back and forth. It's a much deeper conversation. They're saying, we're not just crying over the temple's destruction. That's old news. We've been crying over that for decades. Something new happened. In these two stories, we saw an exaggeration of the destruction. In, time, in story one, Beis is destroyed. Hashem decreed it. It's very sad. But those people who already destroyed it decades later, they're on top of the world? Why? That's like a, 
insult to injury, that's salt on the wound, that's like putting, sticking the knife again deeper. The fact that Rome had to destroy Jerusalem, Hashem decreed it. The fact that Rome was a mighty empire at the time of destruction is also not what they're questioning. Because if Jerusalem, the Jewish people have to be defeated, better they be defeated by a mighty empire than by a humble empire. That's less of a shame. And the verse even says, that Lebanon, which refers to Jerusalem, will fall to the mighty one, to the superpower. So it makes perfect sense that at the time of the destruction, decades before this story, Rome was a superpower. It wasn't taken over by some third world country. It was Rome. On the contrary, that diminishes the shame, the chilul Hashem, the desecration of Hashem's name, the desecration of, of the name of the Jewish people. Hashem's chosen people, they, they, were, they were humbled. They were defeated by who? By Rome. Makes sense. Now that that's done, Rome already fulfilled its mission uh, that Hashem willed it by his decree that this mighty nation should defeat the Jewish people. Decades, decades later, they have to be on top of the world and celebrating. Why? That's humbling. That's shameful. That's a double Quadruple, Chilul Hashem and Chilul Shem Yisrael, desecration of the name of Hashem, desecration of the Jewish people, Hashem's chosen people. Created shame over the destruction that they're crying, not over the actual destruction. That's, of course, that's a given, that's already old, that's a constant crying, if you will. But there's a renewed crying over the fact that the, the temple is not enough to be destroyed, but it's exaggerated. And the same thing is in the second story. Not only is the temple destroyed, but, and as the verse says, that the temple is plowed like a field. But the Holy of Holies, the foxen didn't just come off the Temple Mount. It's destroyed, the foxen, it's a destruction. That's Hashem's decree. No, the fox came out of the Kedish HaKadosh, the holiest place where no Jew is allowed to go. And even the Kayan Gadol can't go if it's not Yom Kippur. And when that, the right conditions are exactly the right garments and the right, the right carbonos, etc., etc., the right incense. This is dafka specifically. It's like a chutzpah. It's like sticking it to us. You didn't have foxen roaming somewhere around. You had them roaming by the Holy of Holies. <laughs> this is an exaggeration of the churban, of the pain of destruction, and therefore the shame of Hashem's name and of the Jewish people. That's why they're crying. It's a whole new insight of the debate, of the discussion. Says Rabbi Akiva. That's why I'm laughing. Because this indicates that the reward, the redemption, the transformation which will come about through this will be an exaggerated one. So, of course, it's going to be Mashiach. No, it's going to be extraordinarily good. It's going to be beyond imaginable. That's Rabbi Akiba's reply. And you see it in both replies. In story A, he says, if this is how the bad guys are getting treated, imagine how us. It's not that we're going to have a redemption and they're going to leave us alone. It's going to be celebration, jubilation. And the same thing is in the second story. That, that, uh, that he says there's the two prophecies, doom and gloom and redemption. When I saw one fulfilled, I know the other one's going to be fulfilled. Says that, but this is not God forbid that he's questioning if the second one is going to be fulfilled and he needs a proof. And now he's sure of it because the first one was fulfilled. No. What he's saying is, I knew, of course, the all prophecies, especially for good, will come true. But the question is, to what degree? 
Will redemption be okay, no mozzarella? Or will it be beyond imaginable? It'll be off the charts. It's going to be exaggerated goodness. Now I know. That's what Rabbi Akiva is saying in the end of the second story. So that answers question number two. Question number two, a very strong question. Rabbi Akiva is doubting the prophecy be fulfilled. He needs proof. The answer says that ever no. This whole conversation is not about the actual prophecy. This conversation is about the exaggeration of the bad and therefore, therefore the exaggeration of the good. The whole story makes sense now. And this also answers question three, which now does now becomes very meaningful in the discussion. That specifically of all the verses, the verse chosen here is um, Zion will be plowed like a field because plowing is an example, it's a metaphor where destruction is part and parcel of growth and, 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 and new life, and that's Rabbi Akiva's message. They keep pointing to the destruction, not just the destruction, as I said before, but the exaggeration of destruction. The added unnecessary shame, seemingly, of destruction. And that's what's bothering them. How can Hashem do this to us in both stories? And Rabbi Akiva says, whatever you're seeing, which looks bad, doesn't look bad. It looks exaggerated bad. It's because it is really the beginning of the process of this exaggerated good. And what's a perfect example in our world of that? Plowing. You're plowing a field. It's a form of destruction. But that's how you make the field sprout up and grow. So the Rebbe answered all these questions. Gave new insight to the whole story. And, um, and make sense of the story. Make sense of his question. And makes sense of their answers. And makes sense of, 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 of the whole conversation back and forth. So that's step one of the seal. I recommend pausing and taking this in. Taking a story in the Talmud, two stories, which seem like a play on words and giving it a real meaning. And the main focus is the exaggeration of the bad versus the exaggeration of the good. And that the good will come from the bad like the plowing. Okay. Now that we have that down pat, now that Rebbe says, just to make it easier, I once again posted the two stories right on top of the screen. The punchline of all stories. Now that Rebbe says, okay, so the dialogue between Rabbi Akiva and the sages is understood, but there are some other things that need to be understood. And this section, my goal is to present the part of the sikha that is saying, tell me what's behind this debate. Yeah, you made sense of the discussion. You made sense of what they were saying and what he was saying. Because without the sikha so far, the conversation just doesn't make any sense. You made sense of that. Why they took that, you know, what their position is, what his position. But now the question is why? Why are they taking these positions? Why don't they just all agree to one way or the other? And even after Rabbi Akiva points it out to them, they still don't agree. Like, what's behind, in the language of, 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 of learning, what's the svara of the machlekes? What's the theory of, of both opinions? You can't, they're not just stubborn people. I'll, I'll cry and you'll laugh. And I'll find the reason to cry and you'll find the reason to laugh. You, you can always do that. But the Rebbe 
Like when you learn Tata, you know, you want to understand what's happening. You're talking about Tanoim, these great giants. What what is uh, behind uh, their debate? That's the that's the main question, so to speak. We're now addressing. It's a fundamental question of the Sikha. What is this about? This is a whole long story, two stories, and it's the end of a whole tractate. And they disagree, and then they do agree. Like, what are their positions? On the face of it, it looks like uh, that they're pessimists, and he's an optimist. They see the bad, and he says, "Aha, it's going to be good in the future." But then the Rebbe comes in and says, but everyone agrees with the statement, quote, one must always say whatever Hashem does is for the good. It's a famous story in the Talmud. Rabbi Akiva himself said that statement. He coined that phrase. Whatever Hashem does is for the good. And there's the well-known story, right? That he's traveling as he normally would with his donkey and his rooster and his candle because he would make sure to, to stay up at night and study. His rooster would wake him up in the morning, etc. And his donkey would carry him along the way. And the story goes that he came to a city and he wanted to stay overnight in someone's home and no one let him in. It was a city of mean people. So he stuck out in the field, which is bad news. And not only that, but then the wind came and blew out his candle so he could no longer learn Teda. He's sitting in the dark. And the cat comes and, and eats up the rooster. A lion comes and takes away his donkey. And he's left with nothing. And alone out in the wilderness. And what did he say? His favorite line, his famous line, whatever Hashem does is for the good. And it turned out that it was because next morning he found out that bandits had attacked the entire town. And had he been in the town or had he had his candle, he would have been noticed. And had he been in the town, he certainly would have been taken away. And the rooster could have made noise. The donkey could have made noise. And here he was speared. So all of these bad things, this whole list of bad things turned out to be good. That's Rabbi Akiva's favorite state, famous statement. But this is not just the opinion of Rabbi Akiva. Everyone agrees. This is halacha. It's brought in the court of Jewish law. He was the one, I guess, who coined it. But this is halacha. Everyone agrees with this statement. The other three sages will also agree with this statement. So, so therefore, question one, question one and two complement each other. What is the thought process behind their debate? If they are crying and they're seeing negative, there's pessimists, and he's explaining to them the positive. He's supposed to see everything as good. Why don't they? And further, three, why did they reject explanation in A, but accepted it in B? After Rabbi Akiva told them his position of why he's laughing in story A. Because, as you can see on top of the screen, uh, this, this is for transgressors, a man to how much God will give to the Yidin who obey him. They didn't accept it. They didn't start to laugh with him. They didn't accept the comfort. After story B, the business with the two prophecies, the bad and the good, then one is linked to the other. They said, you have comforted us. And they did it twice. Why didn't they accept it after story A? If they're open to accepting positive attitudes, they didn't accept it after story A. Because obviously they know that their approach is a pessimistic one or what have you. And yet after story B, they accepted it. Not only accepted it, but they said you offered us a double comfort. What's that about? This is Torah. This is the Gemara. This is not just random. Could have been one. It said two. No, it's exactly precise. What is this about? And then finally, a seemingly side question, but by the Rebbe, nothing is on the side. Why does it list the names of the sages? These four sages spent a lot of time together. And many times in the Talmud, you find the Akiva traveling with the sages. It says, Akiva v'chachavim, the Akiva and the sages because they tend to disagree and take different approaches on many things. It doesn't have to list all their names every time. 
And yet in these in stories, it lists, it doesn't say Rabbi Kiva and the sages, but it says their names, Rabbi Gamliel, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Lez. Why is that? So let's first zero in on question one, because that's the main question. That's really the purpose of this screen here. And this part of the shir. Let's understand what is the debate between the two sides. So the debate is not just if you have to see things as let's the debate says that everything like this. If I'm dealing with something that is negative in the present, but I know there's going to be a future positivity coming out of it, does that justify the current negative or not? Should I accept and celebrate almost the current negativity? Because there will be a future positivity that will be outshine it, if you will. Or no, right now I'm in the present and there's something negative, I should mourn over it. That's the debate. We're going to see on the next screen that's going to be discussed in halachic terms. And the Rebbe does that in the Sikha here, but for the sake of clarity, I'm putting it on the side for now. But even without the halachic debate, it's a very interesting debate. You see something that's no good. But you know that something good will come from it. Either you know it or you believe it. You have a moon in Hashem. Should you start celebrating now or should you mourn now? Does the future positivity justify the present negative? So, the Rebbe explains that there's three levels. There's three levels that way this is manifest. Let me just line up my columns. There's three levels, the way this could be. And this is interesting. Three levels across the screen here. Something bad can be happening. It's bad. But I know that there's going to be something good resulting from it. Second level. It's bad, but it will prove to be good. Not that something else good will result from it, but it will prove to be good. And number three is something bad is happening and you already see the resultant, you see that the goodness that it, that it will prove to be, but you see that already now. Three levels. Let's clarify this. These are examples. This second line here is my own examples. I'm going to put it in parentheses because it's not in the SIPA. But I feel that for understanding this for myself, um, I needed examples to, to contemplate. So let's make take an example uh, first of something bad with a good result. So I heard a story once. You probably heard many stories like this. There was a Yid, uh, a Yid who lived in the five towns on Long Island. His name was Label Zisman Olavashalom, Holocaust survivor. Many people know him. And he survived the Holocaust. Fantastic person. And he wrote in his book and he told a story which I heard him tell himself that this guy was leading. Uh, groups of teens to Israel for the birthright, as a birthright chaperone, a birthright leader in his 70s. He was a very youthful person in spirit. And in his mid-70s, he was going with all these kids and celebrating with them. And on one of these trips, you know, he would go with them on these uh, flying foxes. You know, you get onto a, a little harness and you fly through the trees. And it's a very thrilling thing. And this is something that people do when they're 12 years old or 18 or 20. This guy was 75 or whatever, and he was going on with the kids. And he gave a little shift, and his shoulder hit a tree as he's flying through, and he broke his shoulder. And he described it was extraordinarily painful. They had to take him to the hospital. I believe they had to operate. It was a very painful thing. It was a big deal. 
P.S. They opened the shoulder. They found an advanced stage of Yenamachla, of the big sea illness. And it turned out they were able to deal with it. And that terrible accident saved his life. It revealed a serious illness. It saved his life. So here we see the bad had a good result. However, that's not the highest level. That's only level one. Why is it not the highest level? Because the bad is still bad. He hurt his shoulder. And he went to the hospital. And he was in a lot of pain. It, it's only that it helped alleviate something that could have been a lot worse. In the end, it was one of his greatest blessings. But in itself remains bad. It was good only because it helped discover the serious illness that was in his, in his shoulder. In fact, it would have been better that he wouldn't have the serious illness in his shoulder. And he wouldn't have this. This is very much like the story of Rabbi Akiva when he, when he lost the donkey and the fire and the rooster and they didn't let him into the city and he was safe from the bandits. It ended up being a good thing, but it was still a very painful night and he still had a serious financial loss of all these things. It would have been better if the bandits didn't come and people let him in and nobody robbed him of all these things. It's not really all good. It's a bad thing. It's a bad occurrence. It was a financial loss. It was discomfort. It was pain. But considering all things considered, it ended up being a good thing. It's a net positive, but it's it came at a cost. A higher level would be, I'm envisioning if someone, God forbid, suffers a fire. A fire is one of the worst things that can happen to a family. It's scary, and etc. And it's very uncomfortable and could be potentially dangerous. And you're displaced for a while. It's a very, very painful thing. No one should know this. Then you turn around a year later, you finished all the tzadis and the insurances and everything, and you have a brand new home. And you turn around to your wife, you're sitting on the couch, you turn around to your wife, you say, Baruch Hashem, you know, it was a very painful year. It was, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. But in the end of the day, this ended up bringing a bracha. So how, what's this about? This is still a present bad. No one wants a fire. You don't wish it on, on, on anybody. However, it proved to be good. And this is a whole different level. The fire proved to bring a blessing. In the case of the accident revealing the illness, don't give me the illness and don't give me the accident. So the, the accident still is bad because it was, it was only better than the, than the better. <laughs> but here, without the fire, I would never be able to afford to renovate the home and I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't want it. It was definitely a painful thing, et cetera, et cetera, and, and to endure. But in the end, I ended up with a brand new beautiful home, which we never could have afford, afforded. So this is a much higher step. There's a much greater goodness, and the goodness is rooted in the bad. The fire brought the goodness. I so said, that's the next step. That's a greater level of, of, of seeing the goodness in something. The highest level is when we are able to see that the bad is already showing the goodness that is really embedded in it. So the example that I thought of is that imagine you have to demolish your home. Why? Because the architect or the engineer discovers that there's cracks in the foundation all over the place. Maybe it was a very rainy summer like this year and the foundation is cracked all over the place. They tell you, you better get out. The beams are rotting. If you don't demolish the home real quickly, the whole thing's going to fall down all over the thing, and you push it, have to move out and demolish the whole thing, and you find the treasure. So here again, something bad happened, but the bad was the good, not the bad. 
like in the second case, the bad proved to be good. You see the differences? In the first case, the lowest level, the guy with the shoulder, the bad is bad, and the good is a result, a separate result. In the second case, the middle of the screen, the fire is bad. But the fire caused a result, a later result of the fire of good. The fire is the one that made the person with a, a, a beautiful home. In the first case, it wasn't like that. The accident didn't say the accident saved him, but it would have been better if he didn't have the illness to begin with. So the accident didn't make him better than he would have been without any illnesses. The accident is bad, but it brought him to take away another bad, a much worse bad. Here, the negative, the fire made it good, made it much better, but it's still painful. He went through a hole, he endured a fire and everything else. But in the last case, but he but but it but it resulted in a blessing. But the blessing is a result of the goodness, of the, of the bad. The fire is bad. The new home is good. A brought B, but they're not the same. Whereas when I'm forced to demolish my home, Hashem smated that my, my foundation is cracking and I have no choice. I have to demolish my home and then I find the treasure. This is not A bringing B. A and B is the one and the same. The demolition causes the revelation of the treasure. And that is the most uplifting God forbid, God spare us from any tsaras. But if you see a tsara on this highest level, where within that itself, you're able to see the blessing, not that it could bring a blessing, not that it itself is the beginning of a blessing. It is already a blessing. It's much more comforting. These are three levels that the Rebbe talks about in the Sikha. And um, the Rebbe tells us, I'm on line two here with the Gemara, the Talmud, that where do we find these three in the Gemara? The first one we find in the statement of Rabbi Akiva, everything Hashem does is for good, as I explained earlier. As he saw in the story of the rooster and the donkey and the fire and etc., that's exactly that story. Something bad happened, but it avoided a worse, a worse scenario. It still remains bad. Rabbi Akiva says you have to say it's for the good. Then you have the present bad, which will prove to be good. That's story A, right? Look at the top of the screen. You see bad guys, transgressors, having a great life. You know how good the life will be for those who serve Hashem. Parenthetically, this is the famous lines that Rebbe wrote in his own notes in the Deshimah, that even as a child, he started to envision when he saw the Tsaris of Galos, that he witnessed with his own eyes, the pogroms, etc. He started to imagine how good the redemption will be. It's very much mirrors to my thinking, this particular Talmudic state. How good is it going to have to be? The bad guys are suffering. You can imagine how the good guys are going to be. It's going to be a bliss, unimaginable, exaggerated goodness. True. So the present bad will prove to be good. Because it's a seesaw. It brings it. But it is still very bad right now. It's gullous. It's negative. It's pain. It's suffering. The bad guys are celebrating. The shame of Hashem and of the Jewish people is extraordinary. However, don't worry about it. It's going to be an extraordinary goodness resulting from it. That's story A. Story B, the Gemara is not sufficient, sufficing with story A. It gives us story B. What do you need it for? Story A adds to the statement of Rabbi Akiva and the other story with the donkey, as said. 
because not just the bad is removing something worse, but the bad is actually becoming good, resulting in good, but the good is later. Story B is a deeper recognition that Eber wants us to recognize. That in the, in the negative, we could start to see the positive. Here we have a prophecy. And it's a prophecy of Isaiah, the prophet of redemption, who says that there's two witnesses. The two witnesses are uh, Ria and uh, Zechariah, who lived in different times. And one spoke about doom and gloom, one spoke about tremendous redemption. And they are described by Yeshaya, by Isaiah, as two witnesses. Two witnesses being they are part and parcel of the same testimony. Which means that Yeshaya is telling us you need to know the bad and the good are one and the same. When you see the bad, and you see it in an exaggerated fashion, aha, that's because the good's going to be exaggerated. It's part of it. It's like a plowing of a field. You take a field and you plow it. You're seeing destruction. And the guy says, what are you talking about? You're kidding me? This is really, this is going to make the field prepared for tremendous growth. Or as the example brought in other sikhs, that the temple is destroyed. It's like destroying a home because you're going to build a much bigger home. The destruction is part of the building. And in and of itself, and that is spelled out in Yeshaya's prophecy where he calls the two witnesses from two different eras. And he calls them as witnesses because witnesses have to be standing together. And he is teaching us that the two are part and parcel. When you see Nebuch, the Rebbe is expecting us on this level of story B, Rabbi Akiva is expecting us to not just see <clears throat> Golos as leading up to something good, but to see somehow the goodness in the Golos itself. It's a plowing. And the Rebbe helps us. He gives us an example that's brought in, in, in Tanakh and uh, regarding the Besamidus destruction that um, it is said that one of the blessings of the destruction as an example is that Hashem expresses anger on the, uh, the physical structure and not on the Jewish people. So this is just an example of how the destruction itself was tremendous blessing. He speared them. But I, I, do I see that as just as an example? The same thing is the general picture. You're seeing a fox walking in the Holy of Holies, the worst level of destruction. Fulfillment of the prophecy of Zion being plowed like a field, not just Zion, the base of English itself, the Kedush HaKadosh, the holiest place. Aha! That means it's exaggerated evil. This is going to be exaggerated goodness. And this is part of the other prophecy because Yeshaya juxtaposed them and made them into one, indicating that if you look close at Golos, especially if you have the eyes of Rabbi Akiva and the eyes of the Rebbe, you will see in them the goodness. As mentioned earlier, as the Rebbe said in his diary, when I was a child, right? From the days of going to Cheder, even before I started to imagine, create a visioning, a vision in my mind of the greatness of the Golos, of the Geula, which will justify, so to speak, the redemption. Again, the similar concept. Says the Rebbe, this is what's happening here. This is why, first of all, we have the famous story of Rabbi Akiva elsewhere in the Masech Tabrakas. And then we have these two stories in Masech Tabrakas. They're not repetition. They're not saying the same thing. It's level upon level upon level giving us example or expressing a deeper recognition of the ultimate goodness of Hashem and everything that he does. As described now, the three levels. It's a goodness, it's a bad that potentially brings some goodness. It's a bad that results in good. And it's a bad that in and of itself becomes revealed as good. Even now. So the Rebbe says, now let's talk about the debate. Now let's talk about the debate. 
Now we can understand the thinking. We answered the question in general. They're crying and he's laughing because they, they don't believe that the future justifies the president. And he does. Okay, it's relatively simplistic. But the Rebbe says there's much more than going on here. We spoke about three levels. So let's discuss what the position of Rabbi Akiva and the sages, the Chacham and the other three, are in each of these three. In the line where I'm highlighting. When it comes to the idea that something that you're supposed to say, whatever Hashem does, is for good. Everybody agrees on that. We said before, this is question number two. That's a halach. Nobody argues with that. But that doesn't mean that you're laughing. It doesn't say that, that everything Hashem does, we should celebrate. If something bad happens, you, you, you say a bracha, there's a bracha for something bad happens. Even if something good will result from it. However, you're supposed to say, which means you're supposed to recognize on faith that it's all for the good. But right now it's bad. So I have faith. I know it's for the good, which will result from it. And of course they believe in that. That's halacha. But it's not good. I'm not going to laugh when something bad happens. I'm going to say that it's good. I'm not going to celebrate and laugh that it's good because it's not good. That doesn't just mean say and not believe. You believe it, but you're not feeling it because right now it's bad. You say it because you know that that's what the future will bring. The next level, that middle level, the sages, the sages are crying. Rabbi Kiva is laughing. Okay, you told me that I have to, I have to have faith that it's a future thing, but it still hurts. So what do I do? Especially in this case, it hurts very much. They saw this, you know what I mean, the celebration of Rome and the shame of the Jewish people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. They cried. Does it mean that they lost faith in what the Gemara says in Brachas, that everybody agrees that you have to always know and believe and say that it's all for the good? No, they didn't lose faith. They had no doubt that Hashem is in charge, but nevertheless, you're saying something bad, you cry. Rabbi Akiva laughs, because Rabbi Akiva is of the opinion, as explained earlier when we answered question one, that the future is the focus. If the future is good, it justifies the present, it elevates the present. They can't handle that. You tell me the future is good, right now is bad. This is where they disagree and they're crying. And even after Rabbi Akiva's explanation in story A, this is bad. Imagine how good it's going to be. They're not impressed. I'm sure it's going to be good. Right now it's bad. So let me finish crying. When Mashiach comes, I'll laugh. Fair enough. So they agree to disagree. Rabbi Akiva goes with them to Jerusalem and they see the fox coming from the Kedesh HaKadosh. And Rabbi Akiva comes and comforts them in story B. And what does he say in story B? That the two prophecies, the ultimate evil pain and the ultimate redemption and jubilation and celebration are really one and the same prophecy. Hashem is saying them both from the two sides of his mouth. One is dependent on the other. It's like plowing a field and it's yielding its produce. The Golis itself is the birth of Mashiach, as it's famous for the destruction was the moment that the Neshama of Mashiach is born, etc., etc. The Golis is not a separate bad, which will result in good. It is the beginning of the goodness. The sages that were comforted. I don't know if they started to laugh. It doesn't say that. Because at the end of the day, their opinion, their shita is... The future is the future, the present is the present. Only Rabbi Akiva is the one who always sees the future as, as if it's present. They don't, but they're comforted. Why are they comforted? Because you explain to them that the future is already, in a sense, happening in the present. Because these two prophecies 
are one and the same. The house is being plowed because we're building a new house. The field is being plowed so we can have sprouting up and growth and regeneration. So, so the, the good is already happening in the present. In the present, they like that. They're present type people. And therefore, even though it's bad, which is, I guess, why they didn't start to laugh, but they accepted the comfort. So now let's answer all the questions at the bottom of the screen. Question number two was all agree the statement, this is not an opinion of Rabbi Akiva, it's the opinion of Allah. He may be the one to have said it, but everyone agrees with it. It's Gemara and Brachas. Yeah, everyone has to say it. Doesn't mean you laugh. Say it means that you believe it, you know it's the truth. I have to feel it. I have to feel that it's all good already. No, that's a different madriga. That's the madriga of Rabbi Akiva or the shita, the position of Rabbi Akiva, not theirs. That answers question two. Question three was, why did they reject explanation A and suddenly in B they were comforted and a double expression of comfort? Because as we just explained, that only in story B did the present become the beginning of the future. And since they're present-based people, until you tell them something the good is happening now, they're not interested. They don't care what's happening later. But if you tell me the present is already the beginning of the future, the future begins now, they could buy in. And that's a double comfort that Rebbe says in the Sicha. The first comfort is that this bad will bring good. It's a comfort. It's not enough to move them, but it's a comfort. But now you're telling me the, the future is not just going to be good, but the bad and the future is, is goodness is already embedded now in the, in the bad. Is the goodness embedded? It's a double comfort. It echoes what the Masha says, that the double comfort, really, they're now accepting both of his stories. Because now that they recognize there's a concept that when something bad happens, the goodness is already beginning to play out. So they, they sort of accepted the prior lesser comfort of the first story, that there will result in the future. It's also a form of comfort. It wasn't satisfying enough until they got the second measure of comfort that they're already seeing the future in the present. It's fantastic stuff. And answer number four, why list the names of the sages? Which is unusual in the Talmud. It usually would mention Rabbi Akiva, Bechachamim, generically, Rabbi Akiva, and his colleagues, because here it's very important. These sages were Akayim, Levi, and Yisrael, respectively. Rabbi Elazar was Akayim, direct descendant of Ezra Akayim. Rabbi Shur was a Levi. Did I get that right? And Rabbi Gamliel was a Yisrael from the lineage of David HaMelech, the leaders of the Jewish people. From him came Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, Rabbi Yehuda HaKadosh, etc., etc. They represent great Jewish pedigree. Rabbi Akiva, by contrast, he's a son of converts. It's emphasizing people of pedigree cannot see what Rabbi Akiva sees because only the comfort only the one who's the convert, who's able to be in a place of sin, of, of, of etc. The Bekiva was 40 years old, he didn't know a word of Torah. And his parents were converts, converts which means he's coming from Gentiles. He's, he's starting with, with, with square A, with nothing. And yet he's not impressed. He sees the water crush the rock. He sees already the future. He says, I can do this. The stretch from where he was to where he would be was unimaginable. He had nothing. And coming from non-Jews, it means nothing. And he's going to end up being the greatest sage in Israel where all halacha goes like him. The stretch is extraordinary. It's miraculous. 
That is the power of a cumber. That's the power of Baal you might say, as the Rebbe says in other sikhs. And therefore, he is the one that always sees the good. He's laughing when there's something terrible going on. It's going to bring good. It's already good. That's the power of a cumber. But Yid doesn't have it because he's not tested by that. He never really stood in the space of unholiness because he doesn't come from that space. And therefore, he is uh, he's not trans doing a full transformation of the present into the future. In the footnote, the Rabbi adds another approach. It's known that Ayyid uh, is considered a descendant of Abraham Yitzchak and Yaakov. That's our yichas, that's our pedigree, our lineage. The converts, interestingly enough, it sometimes says that they consider themselves a direct child of Abraham, not a descendant through 100 generations and what have you, like the rest of us. But in this footnote, the Rabbi quotes a different source that they, their yichas is Hashem himself. The Yid's Yichis is Abraham Yitzchak Yaakov. It's a very nice Yichis. But the Yichis of the convert is to Hashem himself. The Rebbe brings the sources. So therefore, Hashem is beyond time. Yud Kevavke, he is, he was, and he will be. Past, present, future is all in one. And therefore, Rabbi Akiva, he's laughing because to him, the future is already here. Whereas the rest of the Yid and even these great Sadiqim, they couldn't be on that level. Let's close this section. And see what the Rebbe did here. Suddenly, this is not just an interesting story and a story that makes sense. But it's a story that uh, has real significant debate and insight to it. The approach of what over what trumps what, the future versus the present, the future good versus the present bad. And that these two opinions are the opinions of the sages versus Rabbi Akiva, and that there are cases where they don't agree, and there are cases where he can win them over to at least take a level of comfort, a double measure of comfort, because they're starting to recognize that the bad is not even in the future, it's even in the present. So the whole thing has a different meaning, and we understand now why we have to have two stories, how the second one adds depth to the first. And why we needed these two stories in addition to the initial statement of the tractate brachas that all that Hashem does is for good. Different levels of integrating and internalizing this level of faith and, 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 and to what degree we see the good even in the bad. Let's move now to the halachic phase of the sikha, which the Rebbe speaks about it, that uh, normally we don't mix halacha and midrashic parts of the Talmud called Agadah. However, if, it's, if it makes sense, we could learn one from the other, says the Rebbe. It brings different sources, especially in this case where there were, this was the behavior of sages. And when, behave, when sages behave a certain way, that is a source of halacha. It's called maiserab. When you see a tzaddik behaving a certain way, that's the greatest source of halacha. So even though this is not a halachic debate, it's more of a hashkafa debate, right? It's a debate in their outlook. And their level of betachin and the reaction that we should have in terms of our faith and our trust in Hashem, it's more of a hashkafa. It's more of a debate on that level of, of, of attitude, of spirituality. However, everything in Judaism is rooted in halacha in the end. And the Rebbe wants to suggest that these two opinions, Rabbi Akiva versus the sages, is rooted in halacha. And they would take different approaches in halacha. I'm going to do this relatively quickly. The Rebbe goes through it in great detail. And the Rebbe mirrors the prior slide with this slide, if you will, the contents of. But I'm just going to keep it simple and plain. 
And obviously, if one wants to dig deeper, you can open the Sikha. It's this section that I did not really give all the depth, but just the big picture. And the Rebbe says, that, that let's read from the top. There's a halachic application of this debate. What was the debate? Does future positivity justify present negativity? So let's look in halacha. There's a law, there's a debate, a question in halacha. I guess a chakira. Does future outweigh present? Now, what would be an example of that? The doctor tells me that I'm weak. If I fast 10 gedalia, I may not be able to fast Yom Kippur, or I won't be able to fast Yom Kippur. It's only eight days later. Yom Kippur is much more serious. Some gedalia is a rabbinic fast from, this, from, the, from the prophets. And Yom Kippur is from the Torah. You can't compare the severity. What do you do? One approach is, what do you mean? Today, you got to fast. It's some gedalia. That's halacha. In a week, you'll deal with it. Yom Kippur is not here yet. So, so why are you dealing with Yom Kippur? And the other one is, no, we know Yom Kippur is coming. Don't be, don't be blind. And therefore, don't fast now and fast on Yom Kippur. So I made a mistake. So it would, it would seem to be, says the Rebbe, that Rabbi Akiva would hold. Remember, Rabbi Kiva always sees the future. It's Sim Gedalia today. You want to fast, the doctor's telling you, you're not going to fast Yom Kippur. So can't you look ahead a little bit? You know those people who drive and they don't see what's in front of them, they just see the car right there? That's not a good way of driving. I'm told that I drive that way sometimes. You got to see the big picture. So Rabbi Akiva sees the future. That's his approach. And therefore he would say, no, no, no. Yom Kippur is what trumps Sim Gedalia. The sages would say, no. We present, we look in the present. And that's why they saw it also when it came to issues of Ashkafa, because that's their halachic approach. Everything in Torah begins from halach. And therefore they would say, fast some Gedalia, we'll deal with Yom Kippur later. In the footnote, the Rebbe is alluding to, and there's a lot of very rich footnotes. I don't even, uh, did not review them all. I heard some other shiurim on them. There's a tremendous amount of interesting discussion on this. But one of them that uh, is brought down is that there's a famous story that, um, there was a person, a Jewish prisoner, and because he was in prison, he was unable to observe Yiddishkeit fully. He couldn't have a minion, things like that. And they gave him a promise. They're going to give him one day clemency, one day free. So the question he asked of the Rabbanim was, which day should he take? I asked this question once in my class in Chabad. I said, you told that there's one day that you could come out. Some people said, come out for Pesach Seder. Some people said, for Yom Kippur. Some people said, for Yom Kippur. Take the most important day. You want to be with a minion. You want to be with Yidin. You want to be with your family. That's a day. And this was different opinions. And I believe it was the Radvaz, one of the daily Yisrael at the time, said you should take the next immediate day. That's now. And that would be the present, and that would be the opinion of the sages. Another example in that same vein does the future. outweigh the present. There's a rule that you're not allowed to, this is in a footnote. You're not allowed to, I'm bringing it because I think it's going to be interesting. You're not allowed to get onto a ship too close to Shabbos. You have to get onto a ship if it's going to be a long trip. You have to get onto a ship more than three days before Shabbos. And then once you're on it, you you you, you ask the captain to, to stop. But if he doesn't listen, that's not your problem. But you're on there more than three days, it's fine. It's not like you desecrated Shabbos directly. However, the exception is when you're allowed to get onto the ship very close to Shabbos if it's a mitzvah. An example of a mitzvah is that it's a mitzvah to travel to Eretz Yisrael. 
settled in Eretz Yisrael. So you're going to get onto this journey the day before Shabbos or Erev Shabbos because you're going to Eretz Yisrael. But you know that Shabbos is coming. Rabbi Akiva will say forbidden because you got to see the future. The sages might say it's allowed because right now you have a mitzvah. Right now it's not Shabbos. Get on. Again, once you're on the ship, it's not now the important the details. Once you're on the ship and the guy didn't agree to stop, it's already not your choice, then it's not really a, a, a real problem. But the question is the actual getting on to begin with. And they would take those positions, as the Rebbe seems. Another example. If I have a non-binding detail of a mitzvah versus beautifying the entire mitzvah. This seems very similar to the first one. The first one was is the future of doing, a, let's say, a bigger mitzvah like Yom Kippur outweigh the present doing a smaller mitzvah, some gedalia. Or one mitzvah in the future versus a mitzvah now. Why does the Rebbe give a second example where it's not two mitzvahs, one later and one now. It's the same mitzvah, except I could... I could focus on doing all the details of the mitzvah, including every last minutia detail, which may not be critical, but it's part of the mitzvah, versus no, foregoing that detail to beautify the entire mitzvah, hider mitzvah. Hider mitzvah means to make a mitzvah beautiful. It's not a requirement. It's a beyond requirement. So you're giving up on something that's required, albeit not binding, because all it is is one detail. So you still have the mitzvah, you still did it, and it's missing a detail of the actual mitzvah, versus not a detail. The whole mitzvah is beautified. And the Rebbe likes this better. The Rebbe brings this second, and the Rebbe says it's closer to our story, because in the stories here, the two story A and story B, I, you know, there's a, there's a desecration of Hashem's name by Rome celebrating, or by the Foxen, and then there's going to be a celebration of Hashem's name at the jubilation of Jerusalem. So it's the same mitzvah of Chilul Hashem, God forbid, desecration and shame of Hashem and shame of the Jewish people versus celebration of Hashem and the Jewish people. It's the same exact thing. It's like, in fact, it's beautifying the mitzvah. This is my understanding of why the Rebbe brings the second one. I hope I'm right about that. Okay. So the Rebbe says it in the Sikha. I just hope I understood it correctly. So what are examples of this second? It's similar to the first. That there's a bris. If I do the bris in the morning, I will make the mitzvah more complete because the detail of every mitzvah is to do it as early as possible. Don't postpone it. However, there's a beauty of a mitzvah with a big crowd. In the morning, no one's coming. People are running to work. If I do it late in the day before sunset, it's still kosher and I'll get a crowd. Rabbi Akiva would say, we think about the future. And even though now you have the mitzvah and you're foregoing the bris early in the morning, but you're thinking about the future and it's going to be a beautiful mitzvah. And beauty is overriding it. Just like the Jewish people they, they, they saw Rome celebrating with a chilul Hashem, God forbid, and a shame for the Jewish people, but it's going to be beautified that there will be the, the real Kiddush Hashem when Mashiach comes in a bigger way. Whereas the sages, who they think about the present, the here and now, they would say, no, take the bris in the morning. I don't care it's a small crowd. You have a mitzvah to do a bris as soon as possible. And that's a detail in the mitzvah itself. The beautification is less important than the actual mitzvah. You're laughing that Rome is, is partying. That's a chilul Hashem. The fact that later will come a bigger Kiddush Hashem and there's going to be a big beauty that the Jews will be celebrated in an unimaginable way. It's a beautiful thing. It's a hither mitzvah. It's a beautiful beautification of the mitzvah of Kiddush Hashem. But you're doing it at what expense? At the expense of a lesser chilul Hashem, which is an actual 
sin. So that's how the Rebbe connects it. It's, it's special. Think about it. There's two other examples I'm citing here, which are from footnotes. When should you do Kiddush Laman and bless the moon? One approach is do it the earliest possible time, you know, from the sixth or seventh of the month. You see the moon, make a Because you're supposed to not postpone a mitzvah. The other is wait till Shabbos night, the nearest Matzah Shabbos. What's special about Shabbos night? You're wearing Shabbos clothing. Usually there's a crowd. And the mitzvah is done more beautiful. So again, Rabbi Akiva would say, wait for Shabbos night, because he sees the future. The sages would say, do it ASAP, because they're into ASAP. Another example, very similar. You go to Shul, you have a little Vanessa. You can only afford not such a pretty one, but you can do it first thing in the morning. Or if you go to Shul and you wait till the rich guy shows up and he lets you use his asrik, you will have a much nicer set than you're doing the mitzvah with a greater beautification. So that, again, will be the two sides. The sages would say, do it ASAP. Because if not, you're missing out a detail of the mitzvah itself. You're doing it's a negative. It's like the negative of the two stories that the Talmud says, but they didn't laugh. They didn't like it. Because it's a negative. Even though it's going to be a greater positive. I forgo the greater positive. Don't give me a negative. Worse, as Rabbi Akiva would halachically seem to say, wait for the nicer set. You're missing out on doing the lula first thing in the morning. But when you do it, aha, this is going to be a lula. So I want to just close at the Rebbe concludes the Sikha and the Rebbe tells us that uh, this teaching of Rabbi Akiva first of all this wraps up what the Sikha began with Shabbos Nachamu and the Haftorah is a double measure of comfort Nachamu, Nachamu Ami be comforted, be comforted my people and why double? we now know says the Rebbe from the Gemara, where it says the double expression, Akiva nichamtanu, Akiva, you have comforted us, Akiva, you have comforted us. That it means, as explained in detail, that not only there's a comfort that whatever tzad is that Gullah brings us, brought us, is really here to lead to the ultimate amazing goodness, but within and of itself, somehow, is embedded tremendous goodness. And the Rebbe wants us to try to see that. And that's the Nechama flying the double measure of comfort. And that's really the only real comfort that even the sages are able to hear it and, and accept it. And the Rebbe says, that's what uh, we're going to see. When Mashiach comes, and there's the famous verse of the, of the prophet that we read on, 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 on Achan Shal Pesach, that we will say on that day, I thank you, Hashem, for the Golas. Hashem ki me. Uh, the Rebbe would cry when the Rebbe quoted that Pasuk at times, but um, how can we thank Hashem that for the Golos? Ultimately, the Golos, in a sense, not just it brought to it, but like the plowing in itself was the beginning of the tzmicha, of the rejuvenation. And however one may want to understand it, for this, you know, you have to look at the Rebbe's sickness and Ma'amorim, that the Golos itself is the darkest time and the greatest distance, but that's where we see the Yid's essence, the Yid's Mesidus Nefesh, Yid's dedication. So in Galus, find a Yid in Galus, a Yid who's confused and lost, and etc. Now after Gimel Tamas, even more darkness, and yet a Yid holds strong and does what they need to do. That's the darkest thing. But in that darkness is really the greatest essence, the greatest light, the, the infinity of Hashem's truth. Because look, why is this Yid doing it? So every negative is really a positive if we understand that really it's all Hashem, and therefore within that darkness, you find the greatest closeness which you could never find. You see the, the inner strength of a Yiz, the Shaman and Golis, one that you cannot see in the time of the Guru, based on Mikdash. And therefore that is the way the Rebbe wants us, as much as the Rebbe 
is the one screaming, we are Mashiach now, now Mamish. But the Rebbe also at the same time demands from his chassidim to recognize that it's not bad. It is in and of itself the geula in action. It's happening. We're being plowed, so to speak. And it, 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 the growth is starting to happen. We should have the growth immediately.